Well, hello again, and welcome back to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. I'm your host, Nurse Mo, and as always, I am just really happy to be your study buddy today. And today we are diving into episode 203, which is all about osteoporosis. So before we do that, I do like to take a moment for the listener shout out out to my San fam. And this one goes to Allison. So Allison says, I've been listening to your podcast for the past few months on my two and a half hour each direction commute to my first semester of nursing school, and everything has been amazing. In these COVID nursing school times, you've been by far my best professor. Yesterday's episode felt like you were giving me a personal pep talk that I didn't even know I needed, but was perfect. I've encouraged my entire cohort to drop everything and go listen now. Allison, thank you so much. I know you've got a really busy schedule and that you took the time to submit that review of the podcast means the world to me and that you also recommended that your cohort go and listen. That's just so, so meaningful to me and I appreciate it so much. I don't know exactly which episode you're referring to because I'm reading this shout out to you much later than the time that you submitted it, but I'm just so glad that whatever it was, it helped you. All righty then, so let's pop into today's topic, which again is osteoporosis. And osteoporosis is a pretty complex multifactorial disease of compromised bone strength and integrity. So those are the key things, compromised bone strength and integrity. And when we are looking at bone strength, we're essentially looking at two key things. One is the quality of the bone and also the bone mass. So when we are looking at osteoporosis, what is occurring is accelerated bone resorption, along with decreased bone formation. So we're losing bone and we're not building enough bone at the same time. As this process continues and the disease progresses, that resorption is going to outpace that formation and the bones become porous, they become brittle, and they become very, very prone to breaking. So to fully understand osteoporosis, we're going to have to take a little bit of a detour into the endocrine system and the relevant hormones. And I know anytime we talk about endocrine and hormones, it's really scary because there's a ton of that going on in that system, right? I promise we're going to try to keep it super simple, okay? So don't be afraid of the endocrine system. If you guys can learn the endocrine system really well, you're going to understand quite a bit of various disease processes and a good chunk of pharmacology. So let's take a quick look at the key hormones in bone formation and resorption. So estrogen is probably one of the most important ones, and estrogen is bone protective, okay? There's a lot of way more complex stuff that we could get into. For the most part, understand that estrogen is bone protective, and it plays an important role in the formation of healthy bone. So it does this by kind of a two-pronged approach. It's going to act on the osteoclasts to prevent bones from breaking down, 
And it's going to act on the osteoblasts to help stimulate the formation of new bones. So just as your reminder, osteoclasts have to do with bones breaking down. And osteoblasts are about building bone. Think blast and building. They both have a B. That's how I remember it. So estrogen is really, really important for that healthy bone. We also have testosterone, and it plays an important role in bone density. And when you have lower testosterone levels, this leads to bone loss, loss of bone density. Then we have parathyroid hormone, which you may sometimes see just simply abbreviated as PTH. And PTH is interesting because its effect on bone is dependent upon how it is administered. So if you're giving someone PTH continuously, it causes bone resorption and bone loss. However, when it is given intermittently, then parathyroid hormone or PTH causes bone formation. And this will come into play when we talk about pharmacologic treatments for osteoporosis. When we look at it in that continuous kind of administration format or just in general, parathyroid hormone enhances the release of calcium from bones, and it therefore stimulates that bone resorption and decreases the formation of new bone. But do be aware that you will see medication given intermittently, PTH given intermittently, that's going to help bone formation. So it's very interesting, and it can definitely trick you up if you aren't aware of those two kind of mechanisms there. Another key hormone is thyroid hormone. Hyperthyroidism leads to high bone turnover with reduced remodeling time. And what do you think that does to bone mass? It's going to lead to a loss of bone mass. And then cortisol is another key hormone involved in osteoporosis. Elevated cortisol levels will inhibit osteoblast function, and remember, the blasts are the builders, so elevated cortisol levels inhibit osteoblast function, which leads to less bone formation and weaker bones. So that's your quick endocrine overview for osteoporosis. Now let's look at the types of osteoporosis, and there are two main types. We have primary osteoporosis, and secondary osteoporosis. So primary is the most common type, and then there are a couple subtypes of that. And secondary is osteoporosis that is caused by another condition, such as hyperthyroidism or a medication. And we'll talk a little bit about what those are in just a moment. But let's take a quick look at the two main subtypes of primary osteoporosis. So type one is that postmenopausal osteoporosis, and this is what's affecting women who have gone through menopause, and it's related to a loss of estrogen. Remember that estrogen has that protective effect on the bone. So this type of osteoporosis affects that trabecular spongy bone, tends to affect that more than it does that hard cortical bone. 
And you may see that it is more often related to wrist fractures. And then maybe later as the individual gets older, vertebral fractures than it does, say, hip or pelvis fractures like you see in the other type of primary osteoporosis, which is that senile osteoporosis. And this is what occurs in older individuals, namely, we're looking at 70-ish, 85-ish, kind of in that range and older. And this tends to be related to that loss of hard bone, but also the loss of that spongy bone as well. So that hard bone, again, is the cortical bone, and that trabecular bone is that spongy bone. Again, senile osteoporosis is associated with aging. And here is where you'll likely see more and more of those vertebral fractures as well as leg and pelvis fractures. So let's look at some of the factors that contribute to the development of osteoporosis. And with that, we'll be talking a bit about that secondary osteoporosis as well. So there are Many potential factors in the development of osteoporosis, and these can be modifiable risk factors and non-modifiable ones. So the common non-modifiable ones are female gender, white and Asian race, family history of osteoporosis, being of advanced age, being fair-skinned, going through early menopause or having a late menarche and being of small stature. So those are all things that the individual has zero control over. They're non-modifiable. Then we can look at some dietary risk factors, and these include deficiencies in calcium, magnesium, and vitamin D. And then diets high in protein and sodium can contribute to bone loss, as does high caffeine intake. And then when we look at malabsorption, this would be a cause for that secondary osteoporosis. This can be a result of something as common as bariatric surgery, which can change the individual's ability to absorb nutrients. It can be related to celiac disease or cystic fibrosis or anorexia. And then we can look at underlying conditions that contribute to osteoporosis, and there are quite a few. Some common ones, however, are renal insufficiency, bone marrow disorders, rheumatoid arthritis, systemic lupus erythematosus, so that autoimmune factor there, liver disease, Cushing's disease, Hyperthyroidism is a very common one, and primary hyperparathyroidism as well. And then there are quite a few medications that can contribute to secondary osteoporosis. Some of the common ones that you may see are phenytoin, which is an anti-seizure medication, as is phenobarbital, corticosteroids, heparin use, progestins, loop diuretics, warfarin, that's another very common one, methotrexate, which is used a lot in autoimmune disease like rheumatoid arthritis or lupus, cyclosporine, which is an immunosuppressant medication, 
thyroid hormone is another one, as are aluminum-containing antacids. And then I saw contradictory evidence about lithium. It can affect the body's secretion of parathyroid hormone, and so it can play a role. But then other studies showed that it didn't really have an effect on bone density. So just be aware that some resources are going to say lithium can lead to osteoporosis development, and then others may say no. So always go by whatever your facility is teaching because you definitely want to pass those exams. And then the relationship does remain a bit unclear. There is some evidence that proton pump inhibitors or PPIs can contribute to osteoporosis through malabsorption that is secondary to that low stomach acid state that it creates, that hypochlorhydria, among some other factors. And yes, it does get way more complex than that. But if you go to the blog post associated with this episode, you will see a link to the literature that talks about this interesting and complex topic. And then men who receive androgen deprivation therapy as a treatment for prostate cancer are going to be at higher risk for osteoporosis. And then some lifestyle factors that very commonly do contribute are lack of exercise, smoking, and excessive alcohol use. And then one more thing I want to talk about before we dive into the latte method to look at osteoporosis are the complications. Now, the most serious complication of osteoporosis is fracture. And depending on the individual's age and their health status, a hip or vertebral spinal fracture can cause significant disability and even lead to the individual's death within a year of injury. It's really important to note that a fall or trauma is not always necessary for a fracture to occur. If the osteoporosis is advanced enough, fractures can occur spontaneously. And how we refer to fractures related to osteoporosis is a low trauma fracture. So the patient has some kind of trauma, maybe they, you know, bump against the wall and they fracture their wrist. That's a low trauma fracture. That kind of, you know, hitting the wall with your arm should not fracture your wrist. But if you have osteoporosis, it certainly can. So you will hear the term low trauma fracture. So in addition to these fractures causing disability, even mortality, they are a pretty significant contributor to health care costs, which are estimated to be $20 billion, that's billion with the B, per year. And then the risk of death from complications associated with hip fractures specifically is close to 25% in the first year following the fracture, and over 50% of patients who have a hip fracture have mobility issues that affect them for the rest of their lives, with 25% of them having to go into long-term care. So the cost for osteoporosis is just multifactorial and very, very steep, not just in the financial cost, but in what it does to the individual's life and quality of life. So now that you have a general understanding of osteoporosis, and that was a 
pretty high-level overview, it can get far, far more complex, and I invite you to explore this subject in more detail, especially if you're looking to work with a geriatric patient population. It's very complicated, it's very interesting, and there's a lot to learn on this subject. But you've got a bit of a general understanding now. Let's go through the key things you need to know for your exams using the straight A nursing latte method. So L stands for look. How does the patient with osteoporosis look? Well, one of the things to know about osteoporosis is that they may have no outward signs or notable symptoms until disease gets pretty severe or some kind of a fracture is present. So some common noticeable signs, some common symptoms the patient may complain about are back pain. This back pain is often caused by a vertebral fracture or collapsed vertebrae. A vertebral fracture is the most common manifestation of osteoporosis and while they do often cause pain, sometimes they don't necessarily cause enough pain that the patient seeks care. They may just think, oh, it's arthritis. Oh, it's just part of getting older. And these fractures are often found incidentally when the patient has an x-ray for something like uh, you know, a chest x-ray or an abdominal x-ray. The individual may have a stooped posture related to these fractures, these collapsing bone or a loss of height over time. That's also very common. Now, if a fracture is present, the patient will very likely complain of pain, and they may not be able to bear weight, like let's say they fracture their wrist. They're not going to be able to bear weight and use that arm to push themselves up to a seated position or hold something heavy, or if the hip is fractured, unable to bear weight on a fractured hip. And it's interesting to note that hip fractures, they are so, so common. They occur in up to 15% of women and 5% of all men by the age of 80. So please get your daily exercise and take your supplements so that you can stave off senile osteoporosis as much as possible. And then other fractures could cause a bony prominence, which you may be able to palpate or um, actually see. So that's the general idea of how a patient looks. Not a ton of outward signs and symptoms for osteoporosis until a fracture is present. And that's why a lot of times it's not diagnosed until a fracture is present. It can be tough to transition from a student to a professional nurse. I remember when I started out as a new grad in the ICU, talk about feeling like a total imposter. I felt like I had no idea what I was doing. Did I really even belong here? And to say that my anxiety was through the roof was an understatement. But then I started with my nurse residency program and it really made all the difference. And that's why I want to tell you about the nurse residency program with HCA Healthcare. Now, this program supports newly graduating nursing students at those early stages of their careers. HCA Healthcare's year-long nurse residency program helps first-year nurses transition from the classroom to working in the field with confidence, develop critical thinking skills through hands-on clinical experience, and get support from a community of caring, experienced nurses and fellow nurse residents. Plus, nursing residents get access to a range of opportunities to learn from specialists in various areas like the ER, 
ICU and surgical services. Not only that, HCA Healthcare's nurse residency program comes with other great benefits like tuition reimbursement and student loan assistance, 401k matching, clinical instruction by subject matter experts, continued support from mentors, and more. Build the foundation for your career at any of HCA Healthcare's 184 hospitals across 19 states. Students who are preparing to graduate and recent grads are eligible to apply to the nurse residency program at HCA Healthcare. Learn more today at careers.hcahealthcare.com slash residency. Again, that's careers.hcahealthcare.com slash residency. HCA Healthcare, an equal opportunity employer. So A stands for assess. How do you assess the patient who has osteoporosis? So general assessment of a patient with osteoporosis will often be related to a fracture that they suffer as, again, that is when many people first seek treatment or are first diagnosed. So you want to carefully assess the patient for signs of physical trauma that could explain any pain that they are experiencing, such as maybe you would look for bruising that could be associated with that or injury somewhere else in the body. If the patient states they fell and they're having a heck of a lot of pain in their hip, Assess the hip, look for bruising, look for concurrent injury that could occur. A lot of times when people fall, they go to break their fall with their arm and they end up injuring the wrist, the arm, even collarbones as well. If the patient is complaining of pain or diminished mobility, assess for circulation, sensation, and movement, or CSM, of the affected limb or area of the body. And then other assessments may include a general pain assessment, you're looking at the onset, the severity, and any provoking factors. Always looking for those osteoporosis risk factors, culprit medications, other conditions that could be contributing. Measure their height and compare it to earlier measurements to see if there's been a loss of height over time. And assess for fall risk and fall hazards in the home and in the inpatient setting. And one more thing to assess, if your patient does state that they fell or you see any kind of fracture, signs of fracture, signs of injury, I want you to also be doing a neurological assessment as well because people can definitely hit their heads anytime they fall or have a trauma of any kind. So moving on to the next letter in the LATTE method, T stands for tests. What tests will be conducted for someone with osteoporosis or suspected osteoporosis? So osteoporosis can be diagnosed simply due to the presence of a low trauma fracture. You may hear it called a fragility fracture. Again, this is a fracture that occurs either spontaneously or due to very minor trauma. The most common sites of these low trauma or fragility fractures are the wrist, the hip, and the spine. The key diagnostic tests for osteoporosis are, first of all, a bone mineral density test, a BMD test. Bone mineral density can be assessed by DXA, which you might hear people call DEXA. 
DXA, which is the standard test for diagnosing osteoporosis. And what happens when they take this DXA test is you get a T-score. And the T-score compares the individual's bone mineral density against a young adult reference. And a T-score that is 2.5 or more standard deviations below that young adult reference score is considered to be diagnostic for osteoporosis. Individuals with a T-score at or above 2.5 have the highest risk of bone fracture. It is recommended that BMD measurements be taken at the lumbar spine and the neck of the upper femur as fractures in these areas have the greatest impact on a patient's overall health, mobility, and quality of life. And then there's a test called quantitative computerized tomography or QCT. And this test measures the patient's bone mineral density using a CT scan and is most often used when assessing the spine or femur just below the hip. And then the patient may get a test with something called a peripheral densitometer. And these are more portable devices that can measure bone density at the periphery of the skeleton, most often at the wrist and the heel. A positive test with one of these devices will typically indicate that the patient needs a more thorough follow-up test, like a standard DXA test. And then not technically a diagnostic test, but more of a, a score that is given to the patient by the MD is the Z-score. And the Z-score compares the patient's bone mineral density against an age-matched population. And this is more often used in younger adults. Now, that T-score looked at the individual's bone marrow density, comparing them to a young adult reference. The Z-score is going to compare more age to age. And what this does is it provides a score. And if it's negative two or lower, this is considered to be higher risk for osteoporosis when it's being compared to others of the same age. And then we have FRAX, which is the Fracture Risk Assessment Tool, F-R-A-X. This is a computer-based calculator, so not really a diagnostic test, but again, more of a calculation that assesses a patient's 10-year risk of a major osteoporotic fracture, which is considered a fracture of the hip, the humerus, or the spine. And this can be done with or without a BMD score. And then blood tests will measure levels of calcium, phosphorus, total protein, vitamin D, thyroid hormone, parathyroid hormone, liver enzymes, cortisol, and other key factors that contribute to bone health and bone density. So the next letter in the latte method is T, what treatments will be provided? One of the very first treatments for osteoporosis is simply going to be addressing those modifiable risk factors. We're going to promote exercise, especially weight-bearing exercise. We're going to encourage smoking cessation and the avoidance of heavy alcohol use. And then we get pharmacology on board. And there's quite a few different medications used in the treatment of osteoporosis. So hormone replacement therapy has been shown to decrease the incidence of hip fracture 
in individuals who have an estrogen depletion type of osteoporosis, that postmenopausal osteoporosis. So the medication is Evista, and the generic name is raloxifene, if I say that right. And this is a selective estrogen receptor modulator, or SERM. S as in SAM, E-R-M. And this medication is used to reduce the resorption of bone. And again, it has been shown to reduce fracture and can even decrease the vertebral fractures by up to 34%. Adverse effects are hot flashes, increased risk for thromboembolism, and increased risk for uterine cancer. Studies also show that women taking hormone replacement therapy with estrogen or estrogen progestin combination therapy, which is really common to manage menopausal symptoms, do have reduced risk of hip and vertebral fracture. Note that this type of therapy is FDA approved for the prevention, but not the treatment of osteoporosis. And general recommendations are that it is not to be first-line therapy and should be used for the shortest duration possible because of the adverse effects that it has, including increased risk for coronary heart disease, stroke, thromboembolism, and breast cancer. And then another type of drug are the bisphosphonates. And these are typically considered first-line therapy. These medications inhibit osteoclastic activity and reduce that bone resorption. The most significant side effects for bisphosphonates are GI-related, though there is also some evidence that links these medications to increased risk for atrial fibrillation, especially when using the IV formulation. Two common bisphosphonates are alendronate, which goes by Fosamax, and resedronate, which also goes by the brand name Actinel. Another type of medication are anabolic agents, and these are similar to parathyroid hormone and are utilized to stimulate bone formation in individuals at high risk for fracture. Remember earlier when I talked about parathyroid hormone given intermittently actually helps bone formation. These medications are only used for a max of a two-year period and cannot be utilized by anyone with Paget's disease or patients who have received beam or implanted skeletal radiation or who have a history of bone metastasis. There is a newer anabolic agent on the market, which goes by the brand name Avenity, and I'm not even going to try to pronounce the generic name, but this one is administered monthly via an injection, and it can be taken for only one year. So again, anabolic agents and brand names that I can pronounce are Forteo and Timlos. Again, these are similar to parathyroid hormone and can only be taken for a couple of years. A newer one, which is given monthly via an injection, Evenity, is only taken for one year. 
The medication denosumab, also goes by brand named Prolia, is a monoclonal antibody that inhibits osteoclasts and is typically only used in those who do not benefit from that bisphosphonate therapy or who have cancer with bone metastasis. So this medication, denosumab, is given via a subcutaneous injection every six months and has been shown to reduce both vertebral and hip fractures significantly, though it doesn't come without a pretty steep price. These adverse effects can include increased incidence of sepsis, osteonecrosis of the jaw, and musculoskeletal pain. And then we have calcium and vitamin D supplements. These are inexpensive pharmacologic treatments that are pretty accessible for most people. And these supplements should be taken together as vitamin D helps improve the uptake of calcium. So calcium carbonate, which is basically Tums that people take as a, you know, uh, antacid, this has the most elemental calcium per dose, and it's very inexpensive, but calcium citrate might be better absorbed, especially by those who are taking an acid-reducing medication. So your patient could just simply take Tums, which is calcium carbonate, or they could take calcium citrate. Either way, they want to take their vitamin D with the calcium. So the next letter in the latte method is E. How are we going to educate our patient who has osteoporosis? So some key teaching for a patient with osteoporosis is going to center on reducing the risk of fracture and improving bone health through lifestyle modification and pharmacologic adherence. So at-risk patients should be educated on things they can do to reduce risk, such as smoking cessation and avoiding excessive alcohol use. You want to teach the patient to begin or to continue their calcium and vitamin supplements and that those two should be taken together. Teach the patient to avoid risky activities and sports as well as fall prevention strategies. The Centers for Disease Control has excellent resources for fall prevention, and I will link to that in the episode notes. You want to encourage patients to increase their physical activity, teaching them the importance of that. While activities that do involve weight-bearing are more beneficial, it's really just more important that the patient do something with consistency. So if they like walking, and they'll do that with consistency versus running because running would be more weight-bearing, encourage the walking because they're going to do it with more consistency. And for that patient taking bisphosphonates, teach them to take it with a full glass of water with every dose and then remain upright for at least 30 minutes to prevent esophageal irritation. Before we close out, let's do a few pod quiz questions. I know this is a very complex topic, and I just want to hit on a few of the key things with you. So this is how pod quizzes work. I'm going to ask you a question, pause for a little bit, and give you time to do some recall and answer that question. So when we're looking at the endocrine functions and how they contribute to bone health and bone formation, tell me what parathyroid hormone does, not the intermittent dose that you would get with a medication, but just in general, parathyroid hormone. So parathyroid hormone is going to cause bone resorption 
and bone loss. And then what about cortisol? Will it be elevated cortisol levels that contribute to bone loss or will it be decreased cortisol levels that contribute to bone loss? Elevated cortisol levels. And then what about estrogen? Is it because of estrogen excess or estrogen losses that we have osteoporosis in menopause? Estrogen losses. Very good. Name a few of the non-modifiable risk factors for the development of osteoporosis. And there were quite a few. See how many you can name and then I'll go through the list again. So we have being female gender, white or Asian race, having that family history of osteoporosis, being of advanced age, being fair-skinned, having early menopause, having late menarche, and being of small stature. Now, I talked about some dietary risk factors with some key deficiencies. I named three of them. Can you name what those are? Three dietary deficiencies that put you at risk for osteoporosis. Those were calcium, magnesium, and vitamin D. And then name me three lifestyle factors that contribute to osteoporosis. They were lack of exercise, smoking, and excessive alcohol use. Very, very good. And then what is a fragile fracture? What was the other term that I used for a fragile fracture? That was a low trauma fracture. And what is that? That is that fracture that occurs because of a small injury. And sometimes the fractures can even occur spontaneously. What was the medication that I talked about that belonged to the medication class of selective estrogen receptor modulator or SERM? That medication is raloxifene, and the brand name is Evista. And is this going to reduce vertebral or hip fracture? Raloxifene has been shown to decrease the risk of vertebral fracture by 30 to 50%, but not so much shows an effect on hip fracture. What medication class is the medication... Alendronate. Fosomax is the brand name, just in case I'm saying the generic name really wrong. That medication class is the bisphosphonate medication class. And what do you want the patient to do when they take their alendronate? What do you want to teach them to do?
you want to teach them to take that with a full glass of water and then stay upright to decrease the incidence of esophageal irritation. And then we talked about two types of calcium. Which type has the most elemental calcium per dose? That was calcium carbonate. And which type of calcium may be better absorbed, especially if your patient is taking a PPI or some kind of acid-reducing medication? That is calcium citrate. And what do you want to teach the patient to take with their calcium? Their vitamin D. Okay, excellent work. If you liked this pod quiz and doing that little bit of review and recall, I want you to check out Study Sesh, which you've probably heard me talk about a hundred times. Study Sesh is my private podcast. It's only $35 right now. The price will be going up on that, but right now it's $35. And you get about, I want to say 99 episodes that are simply that, pod quizzes about a variety of topics. And then there's Several other episodes that are drills where we just go over and over and over a key thing that you do need to memorize, like cranial nerves, their names, their functions, the RAS pathway, blood flow pathway, things like that that you do kind of need to memorize. And then we do Power Hour, which is a deep dive into a core foundation, super important concept, and then some case studies. And we'll be adding some more case studies soon. And when we do, that cost of study sesh will go up because it just keeps getting more and more and more amazing. And it is um, really, really awesome. So I want you to check that out. So check out study sesh. I will put the link to that in the episode notes. It's just a one-time payment. It's not a subscription. It's not recurring. It's one time. You get immediate access to all the episodes. You can play them on your computer or on a podcast player app like Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. And then some of the lessons have really amazing study guides as well. So check out Study Sesh in the episode notes. And then next week, I will be back to talk with you about HIV and AIDS. See you then. Bye for now. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing.